Deuteronomy 27, verse 9. Then Moses and the priests, who are Levites, said to all Israel, Be silent, O Israel, and listen. You have now become the people of the Lord your God. Obey the Lord your God and follow his commands and decrees that I give you today. On the same day Moses commanded the people, When you have crossed the Jordan, these tribes shall stand on Mount Gerizim and to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these tribes shall stand on Mount Ebal, or Ebal, to pronounce curses. Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. The Levites shall recite to all the people of Israel in a loud voice. Cursed is the man who carves an image or casts an idol, a thing detestable to the Lord, the work of the craftsman's hands, and sets it up in secret. And then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the man who dishonors his father or his mother. And then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the man who moves his neighbor's boundary stone. And then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the man who leads the blind astray on the road. And then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the man who withholds justice from the alien, the fatherless, or the widow. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the man who sleeps with his father's wife, for he dishonors his father's bed. And then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the man who has sexual relations with any animal. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the man who sleeps with his sister, the daughter of his father, or the daughter of his mother. And then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the man who sleeps with his mother-in-law. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the man who kills his neighbor secretly. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the man who accepts a bribe to kill an innocent person. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the man who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. And then all the people shall say, Amen. Amen. Let me pray before we jump in and talk about this one. Father, we need your help. Pray, Holy Spirit, will you come? Will you open up our eyes and soften our hearts and unclog our ears because you know that we have no hope of understanding what this uh, weird passage means apart from your help. So we ask for it now and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage is all about community. How do we live in the context of this web of relationships with each other? And you have heard from the seniors that when you get involved and get connected to other people, something actually starts to happen. But how does this all work out? So here are the three things we're going to look at when we look at this passage tonight. We're going to see the necessity of community, the character of community, and then the power behind it. So the necessity, the character, and the power. All right, so let's look at the necessity of community. If you noticed, this whole chapter, chapter 27, is setting up this religious ceremony. This is a covenantal ceremony where everybody is renewing their vows, their covenant vows to the Lord. It's sort of like when a married couple is renewing their vows to each other. This is sort of the situation. And so if you can kind of picture the layout, there's this valley 
And on either side of this valley are these, these two mountains. And they represent uh, blessing and they represent cursing. And so you may, you may remember, if you're familiar with the Bible, that there are 12 tribes of Israel. Tribes are basically just different families. So if you, you know, all those weird names that we read at the beginning, Levi, Judah, Issachar, all these weird names are just different names for tribes or families of Israel. And so what they did was six of them, they divided in half, six of the families would go up on this mountain to be a representative of blessing. The other six, the other half would go up on this mountain to be a representative of cursing. And so in verse 14, it talks about how the Levites, who are the the priests of the day, would stand in the valley. And they're the ones that had the Ark of the Covenant, which had the Ten Commandments, basically the representation of God's presence. And they would announce the law. They would announce these curses and all of the people together would say, Amen. I'm sure you picked up on the repetition there. They, they are basically, everybody is agreeing as a unit, as a collective corporate body of Israel, we are going to do this and we are going to follow God in, in, with our lives. And so here's what I want you to notice. Here's the f- basic first point here. Notice that everybody is involved. Every single person, this is assuming that the community as a whole is the community that is renewing their vows to the Lord. This is a corporate thing, and this is the assumption behind the entire book of Deuteronomy. But why? I mean, why, is this the, why is this the assumption? Well, if you, if you look at every single time that Moses, as he's speaking the book of Deuteronomy, says you... You know, you go do this, you go do that. It is assuming he's speaking to the corporate people of Israel. And so as the corporate body is renewing their vows, they are renewing their identity. As it said in verse 9, you have now become the people of the Lord your God. And so here's the assumption behind this book and behind the entire Bible is that you cannot relate to God merely individually. The context with which you came to know God and the context with which you will get to know yourself and the context with which you will continue to grow in your relationship with God is the context of community, the context of being involved with other people. This is intrinsic to how you were designed. You were hardwired this way, deep in your DNA, where you have a deep, deep desire to be known. I don't feel like I have to prove this to you, but I will try. You remember the movie, I Am Legend, where there is this viral outbreak that kind of overtakes the whole city, the whole world, and Will Smith has, I guess it's, is it New York City? All of New York City to himself, because all the zombies, all the people who have been infected with this viral outbreak are zombies and can't come out in the daylight, so they're all hiding in the dark and in the shadows, and he has basically free access to the entire city. And so what does he do? If you had access to the entire city, you can do whatever you want. You would probably do what he did, which is go to Blockbuster and start checking out movies, which is what he did. But if you remember that scene, when he's in the movie store, he has set up all of these mannequins all over the store. And so he comes in and he kind of talks to this one. He kind of jokes and flirts with this one. Why is he doing this? Because he needs community. Being alone is driving him crazy, and he is going to get community, even if he has to fabricate it and get community through relating to mannequins. It is deep in his heart. It is deep in your heart as well. I don't have to really prove this to you. This is why it sucks to be bored. This is why being lonely depresses you. This is why when you think about being single for the rest of your life, it scares you. 
This is why solitary confinement is a form of punishment, a form of torture. This is why when people who cut themselves off from the rest of the world and seclude themselves and live by themselves are just a little odd. Something is off with them, and you know it, and everybody knows it. Something's not right about that. They are created and designed to be in the context of community. Our experience proves this. The Bible reinforces this. We need each other. We need corporate community. My pastor back in Charlotte put it this way. There is no such thing as a personal relationship with God. And here's what he means. Of course he believes that there is such thing as a personal relationship with God. And I do too. And the Bible does too. But he means is that there's no such thing as merely a personal relationship with God. I got me and Jesus. I don't need the church. I don't need community. I don't need anybody else. I got me and Jesus and I'm set. That is not Christianity. That is not the gospel. That is not good news. You were created and designed to be in the context of other people. This is the first point. We need it. Before we go on to the second point, let me just draw out a couple applications and implications of this real quick. You live in the world of community. You are on a campus with 16,000 people. And it is possible to be surrounded by people and to not experience community because you can wake up in the morning, check Facebook for a couple of hours, walk to class while listening to music and not having to talk to anybody, sit in class without talking to anybody and just listening to the lecture, uh, go and get lunch by handing your card to somebody that you don't have to talk to as you swipe and you can eat by yourself and you can go over to the library and study by yourself and then when it's all said and done you can go back to your room and watch TV by yourself or hop on you know, your computer by yourself and play Facebook, you know, get a, you know, play Xbox by yourself, play Facebook. <laughs> you can. You know that that's not community even though you are surrounded by people because... Community is something deeper. It is not just this collection of people who are occupying the same, play, the same space. It is being known. Allowing other people to know you and you knowing other people. So here's the question for you. Do other people know you? And I mean know you. I mean not just know your name and know your major and where you're from, but do you allow yourself to be known? Are you, inv- are you making... This community, if this is the community that you're interested in, are you allowing some community to be important enough to you where you're going to invest in it and you're actually going to give up time for it to make yourself vulnerable to be known? And so here's my suggestion for you. Stick around afterward and talk to people. Talk to someone that you don't know. Introduce yourself that you don't know. Get involved in a local church. Begin plugging in and threading yourself into a community because you can show up and you can listen and you can take notes and you can leave and not know anybody and that's not community. Nobody will know you and you won't know anybody else. You are, you are involved in a, not a community at that point, but you're involved in a crowd, just a collection of people. That's just individualistic classroom consumerism. Jump in and get involved because you need to. And it doesn't have to be RUF. RUF is negotiable. Get involved in a church. Find some faith community where you can jump in and get to know other people and allow yourself to be known. You need it and other people need you too. That is the necessity of community. Second thing, let's look at the character of community, specifically the character of the community of the people of of God, the people who are trying to follow God. What does it look like? Well, I'm sure... 
as you're looking at this passage, you can see there are 12 different curses that we read. And when the Levites would announce these curses, all the people would respond and say, Amen. Which basically, Amen means, I agree with that. What that guy said is just as, if tr- just as true as if I said it myself. So, I, I want you to see what they're doing. They are saying, we are going to follow God. We are going to adhere to what these things uh, are being said. And if we don't, we, are going to, we, we will be cursed. This is what is called a self-maledictory oath. Fun word to say, maledictory. This basically means if we don't do what we promise to do, we submit ourselves to being cursed. Now, now children do this all the time. Basically, you know, one kid says to the other kid, hey, I've got this really intense personal secret. And he tells the other person, and the other person's like, cool. But for insurance, the kid who told him says, do you swear not to tell anybody? And the other person says, I swear, cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. (laughs) Which is an unbelievably morbid thought to think of a child promising to stick a needle in his eye. But that's what they're saying. If If I break my promise... Allow me to be cursed. I hope to die and you can plunge a needle in my eye. <laughs> you should change it to plunge. <laughs> but, but this is what the people of Israel is, are saying. They are saying, if we don't follow you, Lord, we promise to, to let you curse us. We deserve your cursing at that point. So, what does it look like? What are they binding themselves to doing? Let me just... Look at this in a very broad way. We're not going to go through all 12 of these. I just want you to see a broad sketch of what the character of this community looks like. There's three different characteristics. The first characteristic is that the people of God are committed to the spiritual. What I mean by that is that they are committed to being spiritually unique. So let me read the first curse. Verse 15. Cursed is the man who carves an image or casts an idol, a thing detestable to the Lord, the work of a craftsman's hands, and sets it up in secret. And so they are pledging themselves to say, we are only going to worship the God of the Bible alone. We are going to fight against any other idol and counterfeit God that is competing for my heart's allegiance. That's what they are pledging themselves to do. That's the first thing. And then if you, it's really interesting. If you look at the very last thing, verse 26, it said, Cursed is the man who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. They're committed to God being the only one and committed to following God's law. This is their commitment to the spiritual, which is interesting that it kind of brackets all the rest of them. So that's the first characteristic, committed to the spiritual. Here's the second, that they are committed to the social. What I mean by that is that they are committed to looking socially unique. So I get this from verse 16 through 19 and then verse 24 and 25. So let me just read a couple of these. I'm not going to go through all of these. Verse 18, cursed is the man who leads the blind astray on the road. The blind were the needy. They were unbelievably dependent on somebody else's help. And so if somebody took advantage of somebody and, and misled them, they were cursed by God. The needy are unbelievably valued in the community of God. This is the same idea behind the, the very next verse. This is verse 19. Cursed is the man who withholds justice from the alien, the fatherless, or the widow. We talked about what those three things were last week, so we're not going to go into that again today. Listen to the sermon. It's on iTunes. Check it out. But, but basically, the point is that the needy are valued in the kingdom of God. 
And then the last two things, verse 24 and 25, have to do with murder. That the person who murders and takes life is cursed by God. Meaning, life is valued within the community of God. And hatred and violence is not. So do you see how radically different the value structure of the community of God is from the community outside of it? The rest of the world values power and comfort and people who are important and prestigious and those who get ahead by taking. The value structure within the people of God values the the family and the blind and the needy and the helpless and those who are uncomfortable. You see how radically different the social values are within the community of God? That's the second thing. They're committed to the spiritual, they're committed to the social, and the last is that they are committed to the sexual. And I mean by that, that they are committed to being sexually unique. All of uh, verse 20 through 23 gives you all these different scenarios of having sex with anybody who is not your wife. So it says, or, or, or your spouse, it says, you will be cursed if you have sex with your father's wife, verse 20, an animal, goodness gracious, verse 21, your sister, verse 22, or your mother-in-law, verse 23, there are other places in the Bible where it gives you even more of a long list of things that you should not have sex with, meaning you should only be having sex with your spouse. Sex is good and right, and we prize it, and we value it, and it is reserved for this context, while the rest of the world says, have sex with whoever you want to. Be, be frivolous, be promiscuous, sex revolution, you know, do whatever you want. The value structure within the people of God looks very different. So you step back and you take a look at all these three things and you say, okay, there's some very unique differences out here. For, for example, the world advi- invites you and wants you to be sexually promiscuous and socially stingy. Or in other words, be very liberal with your sexuality and be very conservative with your money. Spend it only on yourself, spend it only on your family. And you see how that value, that value structure is totally reversed within the kingdom of God, within the people of God. It says be socially promiscuous. Be very liberal with all of your money and be very conservative and stingy with your sexuality. Reserve it for your spouse. But as for your money, give it away. Care for the poor, care for the needy. You see how the, to- the, the, the value structure is totally different. The church, or the Israel, the people of God, look differently socially, spiritually, and sexually. And while RUF is not a church, we are still a group that is seeking to be a community that is shaped by God's grace and God's word. And so, we too should look different in here. Races should get along in here differently and better than they do out there. Those that are needy should be cared for in ways in here that they aren't out there. The socially awkward should be engaged with and given just as much attention to in here as, as the popular people, the socially uh, adept people. The, those that the campus designates as ugly should be given just as much attention in here as those that the campus would designate as hot or whatever else. There should be no little social cliques in here like there are out there. It should be radically different. And sex should look very different in this group as well. It should be prized and enjoyed, but yet unflinchingly reserved for the context of marriage. You see how radically different we are supposed to look. So the question is, how are we doing? 
how do we match up? What, the, what values of the world are being assumed within the value structure here? And you can ask yourself that question for you as well. Do the values of the world blend into your value structure as well? Or do you look socially, spiritually, sexually different? You can change that, you know? You, you can be an agent of change to fix the failures of this community. This little one right here in this room, you can do that. How, though, is the last question. Where do we get the power to do this? Because we looked at the necessity of community, that we need it. We need other people. But you know as well as I do that it is unbelievably hard. People are hurtful and frustrating and flaky and selfish and disappointing. And they let you down all the time. We need them. We need people. And yet we don't want them. Right? It's hard. And then we looked at the character of community, where basically the people of God are, be, are to be committed to righteousness, to be committed to shalom, to be committed to doing what is right. And you know as well as I do that we are failures at this. Sexually, socially, spiritually, we are train wrecks. So where do we get the power to live out this vision? Well, here we go. When the people of Israel... We're listing out all of these curses and saying amen after each one of them. Uh, They were saying, I will be cursed if I don't do this. And so look at the very last verse, verse 26. Cursed is the man who does not uphold the words of the law by carrying them out. If we don't uphold God's law, then we deserve to be cursed by God himself. And so the first step to looking different and getting the power to doing what I'm talking about and what the Bible is talking about is to admit that we are failures at this. may sound counterintuitive, but the first step toward moving in the direction of getting the power to live out this vision is to say, sexually, socially, spiritually, I am a train wreck. And therefore, I deserve God's curse. I deserve God's holy fury to come down upon me because I am a train wreck and don't live out this law. I deserve God's curse. What a great way to end the semester at RUF. I sound like the preacher out on the mall today. But it's true. We deserve God's curse. And we will not get the power to live out this vision unless we are first willing to admit it. Paul takes this last verse in Galatians chapter 3 when you get to the New Testament and he begins fleshing it out. And so I'm just going to read you verse 10 of chapter 3. He says, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. And then he just quotes this, for it's written, cursed is everyone who doesn't continue to do everything written in the law. And here he says, if you don't do everything written in the law, the law is so pervasive, it's so all-encompassing, if it is, you have no hope of looking before God and having any basis of justification of God liking you based off of your obedience to it. You are cursed. You fail to keep the law. In fact, God doesn't owe you anything good for your goodness. You have no goodness. In fact, the only thing God owes you is his curse and his displeasure and his anger and his wrath. That's what Paul is saying. But then he goes on, and he says this in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And here's where we get the gospel. God sends his son, Jesus, 
who lived in community perfectly, loved his neighbor perfectly, upheld the values of sexuality, spirituality, and, and being social perfectly. And he dies on the cross. And as he is dying on the cross, he is undergoing God's curse. God is unloading his holy fury on Jesus so that when he looks at you, when you take in Jesus by faith, he doesn't have any curse left for you. He has nothing but love, nothing but forgiveness for you. And so when you begin to grasp the gospel and grab a hold of Jesus by faith and take this deeper into your heart, here is where you begin to get the power to live out this vision. How though? First is that when you see the cross, you realize that Jesus did not just die for me. Jesus died for his church, his bride. It says in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Jesus loved the church, uh, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We just sang about it in the church's one foundation. He, he sheds his blood for his bride. And so you know when you look at the cross, I'm not the only one. I am united to this bigger, broader, universal, global thing that Jesus has done when he has died for his people. That's the first thing. The second way that you get the power is that this, is, this begins to transform the character of, of you living in community. This may sound weird and counterintuitive, But the way that you will look different from the world is by being willing to admit that you aren't different. And what I mean by that is this. What would it take for you to look across campus and see someone that you find morally reprehensible? Someone that you may consider lazy, a pothead, an alcoholic, a slut, whatever you want to call this person. What would it take for you to look at that person and say, there is no difference between me and them? I need Jesus, and they need Jesus. If you are willing to admit that, that's what begins to give you the the difference, the distinctiveness, for you to be able to say that I don't have a moral leverage on anybody. Where do you get that? Grace. Grace is the only thing that gives you the ability to admit that because it levels the playing field. Because when you look at the cross, it is a visual demonstration to you that says, I can't save myself. I need Jesus to save me. Therefore, I don't have any ability to stand up against anybody else and say, I'm superior to them. It crushes you, it humbles you, and yet it it bolsters you and gives you a whole new identity in the same moment. This is where you begin to get the power when you're willing to admit, I'm no better than anybody else, and I believe and I need Jesus more than anybody else. Derek Webb has this great song, um, and I'm going to wrap up here, called A King and a Kingdom. And uh, the last lines of the song says this, Nothing unifies like a common enemy. Nothing unifies, nothing brings us together like having a common enemy. And he says, and we got one sure as hell. He may be living in your house. He may be raising up your kids. He may be sleeping with your wife. No, he may not look like you think. Meaning, you're the enemy. And the thing that makes Christianity different and the people of God different is that we are willing to unite over the common enemy, which is us. And to say, we are no better than anybody else and we need Jesus more than everybody else. And Jesus says, when you are willing to admit that you don't qualify and that you can't uphold this law, that I will receive you. He has come for his bride, as messed up and as sexually, spiritually, and socially 
messed up as we are, he has come to die for his bride and to make her beautiful. We're going to do something a little differently right now. We are going to pray these words together. Um, this, is, this is a prayer that is taken from uh, the book called The Valley of Vision, which is a collection of prayers that old Puritan pastors uh, recorded. And so one of the reasons why we're doing this is because it is important and it is valuable for you to hear other people praying the same words that you are, for you to be able to look across the room and say, okay, that person over there is admitting the same things that I am. This is one of the reasons why I think it is, is important that when you're singing hymns and, and great songs, for you to open your eyes. I think it's, I mean, I'm not knocking closing your eyes, and I know that that's a great way that you can commune with God personally and individually. I'm not knocking that. But I think sometimes you should open your eyes and look across the aisle and see your, somebody across the way who looks radically, totally different from you is singing the exact same thing, confessing their sin the same way that you are. And that's what brings us together. So, uh, we are going to pray this, and then we're going to sing our last song and be done. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are blind, be thou our light. Ignorant, be thou our wisdom. Self-willed, be thou our mind. Thy cross was upraised to be our refuge. Thy blood streamed forth to wash us clean. Thy death occurred to give us a surety. Thy name is our property to save us. By thee, all heaven is poured into our hearts, but they are too narrow to comprehend thy love. We were strangers, outcasts, slaves, rebels, but thy cross has brought us near, has softened our hearts, has made us thy father's children has admitted us to thy family, has made us joint heirs with thyself. Amen.